Well, please turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And we're looking at chapter 9 this morning. We've been spending the last several months plumbing the depths of John's Gospel. It is a beautiful Gospel. I trust that you have been able to see Jesus as more glorious and more beautiful than you had known him previously. That's my hope and my aim as we've been going through this book together. And so you'll remember last week where we left off that Jesus was exposing this to the people. He was showing who he was. He was showing that he was glorious and that ultimately he was the second person of the Trinity, that he is God, that he is equal with the Father. And people took that to be blasphemous. So what they did is they took up rocks and they started to throw them at him. They were going to try to kill Jesus. And so he runs from the temple. He's literally running for his life. His words are that offensive to these people. And as he leaves the temple, he comes across a man who is on the side of the road and he begs for a living. That's all he does. Every day of his life is bound up in begging for his daily sustenance. And he's begging because he's blind. He cannot see. He was born that way. And so that's where we are in John's Gospel. And let's take a moment to read the passage now in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and washed. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, 
He was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. What do you you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. When we lived in San Diego, we discovered that if you happened to be a homeless person, that was a pretty good place to be homeless because the weather is generally pretty nice. If you had to sleep outside, you probably weren't going to freeze to death in the snow or burn to death in the heat of the sun. And the city had a relatively low crime rate, so San Diego seemed to be a a nice refuge for people who were homeless. Most of the homeless people that I saw when I lived in San Diego were forced on the street to live a life of begging. That's what they did. They lived off of charity and they lived by begging for their daily sustenance from other people. And many of these people had physical disabilities. Some of them were actually blind. And so when you're blind, it's difficult to get a job, isn't it? There's certain things that you just can't do when you can't see. And you obviously can't drive. It's hard to take the bus. It's hard to do life like how so many of us do it and take it for granted every day, that we actually have the vision to be able to see how to do life. And so when you're blind and you've been taken advantage of and you go through life and you make some bad decisions along the way, it's easy to see how you could end up on the street as a blind person begging for a living. That's just what you do for your life. Well, this is a story about that guy. It's a story about a man who was blind, never knew a day in his life where he could see. And he was on the street. He begged for a living. 
I don't know what your normal is, but his normal was begging every day of his life. Some people are in poverty, and they're in poverty because it's their own fault. In fact, the scriptures even tell us that if a man does not work, he will not eat. So they're in poverty because of their own fault. They failed to do the jobs that they needed to do to get the training, to get the job that they could get in order to provide their daily sustenance. Or they and otherwise blew the money that they had. Sociologists will often tell us that there are three main causes to a life of poverty. Failing to graduate from high school, committing a felony, or getting pregnant out of wedlock. Those three things and the likelihood of you living a life of poverty is exceptionally high. But, and I need to say this, but not all poverty is is caused simply because people made bad decisions in life. Separate but equal was not equal. It was separate, but it was not equal. And then you add to the mix that many people grew up in backgrounds that did not have the advantages that I had as a white male growing up in the suburbs where not one friend of mine that I can think of growing up, their parents did not have a bachelor's degree. There were certain advantages that I had that other people did not have. There are certain things that people suffer through that cause them to live a life of poverty that I personally and many of you personally have not had to undergo. And so the whole issue of poverty is something that is wildly complex. And sometimes it's caused as a result of our sin, and sometimes it's caused as a result of living in a broken-down world. Well, people are curious about that question. Why is this man blind? Why is his circumstances all built up in this way to where he's forced to resort to a life of begging? They want to know if it was he who sinned that caused this, or if it was his parents whose sin caused this, if there was a direct cause and effect relationship going on there. And Jesus doesn't even deal with that question. And in fact, he says that it it was not because the man sinned or because his parents sinned, but it was because of the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the reason why this man is blind. As he says in verse 3, so that the works of God may be displayed in him. So that Jesus would look glorious and that Jesus would look radiant and that this man would come to treasure Jesus Christ and build his identity upon him. In fact, that is the underlying message of every single sermon and every single passage that we've come to thus far in John. And it will be the theme of everything that we read throughout the end of the book. That Jesus is constantly wanting us to see His glory and His grace and to build our life and our identity upon Him so that we might enjoy Him and so that we might ultimately, as he says in, verse, in chapter 20, have eternal life. That's the purpose for which John wrote this book. And so even in the midst of our sufferings, he's using those sufferings to bring us out of a dependence upon ourselves and into a dependence upon Him. And that is why this man has spent his whole life that way. We need to keep that as the front burner issue in our life because Jesus is always trying to get us to build our life upon him. That's what he's trying to do. And it would be totally narcissistic of Jesus Christ to do that, to be all about the glory of his Father and all about his glory if all it was designed to do was just to puff himself up. 
to, to be an earthly king. It's not what Jesus is about. He's about displaying His glory and His grace and His truth so that we might be eternally satisfied in Him. That's why He's doing this. He's, he's trying to get us to move us out of building our lives on a bunch of flings from one thing after another and to sing Him as the solid, stable, reliable, true source of our rest and of our joy. That's what He's doing here. The man in this story, never once in his life had seen his mother and father's face. He had no concept of red or yellow or blue or green, nothing of that. It was all his imagination. He had never seen a tree or a flower or the water. He's never seen that. He didn't he he never even looked in the mirror and seen what he looked like himself. I don't even know if you can imagine that. But that's what this guy's life was like. He couldn't get married. He, he couldn't get a job, and that's why he was on the street every day, begging, entrusting himself to other people to provide for his daily bread. And so when Jesus comes and gives him sight, everything changes for him. I mean, everything changes for him. He's able to see for the very first time. He's able to see the world as it is rather than how he just imagined it to be. But even more than that, he's able to see Jesus as the one who opened his eyes. And he comes and he ends up worshiping him. That's what Jesus is trying to do. He comes to sinners and he removes the blindness that they have where they were totally unable to see their need for Jesus Christ. And He comes and He opens their eyes to Him. And when they see Him, and they embrace Him and worship Him as He is, everything in their life changes. The way they see the world, the way they see other people, the way they see the church, and the way that they understand God is now informed by a true and accurate vision of who Jesus is and what He's done for them in the Gospel. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so he can finally see. Everybody realizes that. It's, it's not like you know, modern people who try to dismiss the miracles of Jesus as being a bunch of hocus-pocus that a bunch of superstitious people who are primitive, who live way back in the day, who didn't know anything about modern science believed. Everyone there saw this. They all believed that Jesus had given this guy sight. But the Pharisees respond in the in a very peculiar way. When you look in verse 16, the first thing you discover about how the Pharisees respond to, how Jesus, to what Jesus did here is, is that they get all bent out of shape that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. Pharisees had a lot of rules. Most of them had nothing to do with the Bible. They would take a biblical principle and they would take it three steps to the right of Attila the Hun all the time. And so they conjured up this rule that the fact that Jesus being the Son of God, being very God of very God, coming and healing this guy on the Sabbath, he was somehow breaking the Sabbath and therefore he was not of God. He healed this guy on the Sabbath and they wouldn't let this thing go. They wouldn't let it go. 
They've been harping on him about breaking the Sabbath for four chapters. Jesus gets into this really bad habit. You almost get the sense that he's trying to tick off these Pharisees. He's constantly healing people. They're seven days out of the week to do it, and he's always doing it on the Sabbath. Remember that guy who was an invalid for 38 years? He couldn't walk. Why didn't he do it on a Tuesday? He does it on a Sabbath, and it ticks off the Pharisees. I want to suggest to you something. All of us have a measure of this pharisaical attitude in our life. It's all, all of us have it. It's, it's there in every single one of us. There's not one person who's immune to that. I love to read about statistics about things. And I discovered the state of Mississippi has the highest percentage of people who say that religion is important to them and who attend church regularly of any state in the country. Our, our political boundaries, that's probably the, the highest religious importance in church attendance of any place in the whole world. It might be right here in the, in the state of Mississippi, the Magnolia State. And, and still, so many of us have this pharisaical attitude. I, when, when I was in seminary in Jackson, I did this thing called evangelism explosion. And so... I would go out with this guy in our church who was an orthopedic surgeon and we would go to the hospital to see some of his patients and we would talk about Jesus with them. We would share the gospel with them. Y'all, every single person in Jackson, Mississippi is a Christian. All of them. The whole city is saved. Everyone's going to heaven. Everyone we talked to, 20, 30 people, they all said they were a Christian. They all said that they went to such and such church down the road. They didn't know the name of the pastor of the church that they went to, but they, that was that, not beside the point. Everyone was a Christian. And I wonder if it's not the case that so many of us in the culture and in the context and the place and the age in which we live have become so inoculated with Jesus Christ that we're not infected by him. Does that make sense to you? Do you know what an inoculation is? I went to the doctor last winter when the swine flu thing was the big deal and the nurse took a needle and put it in my arm, and I watched the swine flu go from the vial and into my body. I said, there's the swine flu. It's going into my body right now. It's kind of creepy. An inoculation gives you just enough of the virus to keep you from getting the real thing. Is that Christianity to you? That's, that's what the worship of the true God of Israel was to these Pharisees in so many respects. They were inoculated to Jesus Christ so much so that they could not get infected with them. They could not hear. They could not see. They could not submit themselves to Jesus Christ. So how do you know if that characterizes you? How do you know if you think that you can see but you're actually blind? Well, I want to just spell out a few different ways. First is by looking at the Pharisees themselves, and it's this point. The first way that you can tell that you're blind to Jesus is if the main source of your contentment in life comes from something other than the gospel. Let me say that again. You can tell if you are inoculated, if you are blind to Jesus Christ, if the main source of contentment in all of your life 
is something other than what Jesus Christ has done for you in the Gospel. Let me state it negatively. You may be blind to Jesus if the root of your anger in life stems from something other than the Gospel being at stake in your own life or in the life of the church. What do I mean by that? When you look at the life of the Pharisees, they're always getting excited and they're always getting angry about something other than the gospel. It's just normal for them. That's just what they did. Someone or something other than Jesus was the fundamental root source of their joy. All of us can... God calls us to enjoy every good and perfect gift that He's given to us. All good things are ours to enjoy. But the fundamental underlying root of joy and contentment in life was always stemming from something other than Jesus Christ. And so the question that we have to reckon with and deal with in our life is, what is that in my life? What is that that I am deriving significance and contentment and security and hope from other than Jesus Christ and in the Gospel? The Pharisees were always building their life upon an outward, external conformity to the rules. So that's how they measured their life, how well they conformed to the externals. Many of us have, have been acquainted with some things in the church, such as abstinence from alcohol and, and harping on the sin of homosexuality, which without question is an issue and, a, and something very clearly abominable to God. But it's very easy to go to the grave and say, at, at 110 years old and say, I've never had a drink of alcohol in my entire life. And I've never struggled with that sin of homosexuality. And so you can look at the externals in your life and you can say, that wasn't an issue for me, so God will accept me because I didn't struggle with those particular externals. What about things like gossip? What about things like greed? See, the thing about those is that those are such essential roots, sins of the heart, Every single person struggles with that. There's no one who who has never gossiped or who doesn't struggle with gossip or greed or materialism or all that other stuff. All of us struggle with it. It's, it's, It's deeply rooted within us. It's something that we can actually commit a sin and it stays in the internal, stays within within us. But it still is an offense to God. So we can't take refuge in just the fact that there are certain external things that we haven't done or that we have done that we should have done that somehow we stand upon that and that makes God accepting of us. There's nothing that we can offer, nothing in our hands we bring simply to thy cross I cling. That's got to be your heartbeat. And so my question to you is, what is it in your life that you have to have, that you have to build your life upon, some external thing, in order to make you feel valuable or secure or to validate your existence. In, in seminary, I was mentored by the associate pastor in my church, one of my closest, dearest brothers, mentors in the Lord to this very day. And he was telling me about how when, at another church that he had served at, this church was a very kind of high society church, very upwardly mobile, very wealthy, people driving to church in their brand new shiny Mercedes Benz wearing their $1,000 suits. 
And he drove a car as well. It was a 1979 AMC Gremlin. Do you remember those? That was one of the single worst cars ever made. I mean, it was just it brought the whole company down into the pit. And so he would drive to church in his smoking, billowing, loud, hoopty-mobile AMC Gremlin, and he would pull up next to the guy in the nice suit and the Mercedes Benz, and he would have such a sense of inward peace and a sense of being good and being more godly because he was not addicted to the materialism that he assumed that Mr. Mercedes Benz and Mr. Suit was. And then it occurred to him one day that he had built his life upon not being what he thought that guy was. It was a rule. The the, the rule was that he had to drive this car and that car had to define him And as that car defined who he was in comparison to that guy, he felt accepted by God on that basis rather than on the basis of the work of Christ credited to him. And it rocked his world. An AMC gremlin changed a guy's life. Can you believe that? Hearing that story changed my life because I had to come to terms with the question in my own life, what is it? What is it that I'm relying upon other than Jesus for acceptance before God to validate my existence? What is it for you? Is it your success at work, even if it means trampling on somebody else? Is it the clothes that you wear? You know, every season there's a magazine that comes out with the Ten Commandments of what you're supposed to wear that season. I mean, they're commandments. You've got to keep them. If you don't, you're cursed. The, the dedication to your family, is that something that is idolatrous for you? How dedicated you are to them or even to your church, the service in the church, that's what brings you ultimate security? I'll tell you what it is for me. We don't have enough time for that, but I'll tell you a couple things. One is that I put this thing on myself to be the perfect husband and father. And I also put this thing upon myself to preach the perfect sermon every week. And when I don't meet the standards that I set for myself or even the true standards that I should be standing up to, it cuts at my very identity. I feel as, as less worthy before God and worthy before my wife and my daughter and b- before the world be- because I failed in some measure. It, it actually is a destructive force in relationships to be that way. It tears it apart, puts too much... It, it puts the other person... I, I, I make Rebecca this God that I have in my life. And so when I fail her in some respect, it cuts at my very identity. Rather than being something that I can say, wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of sin and death? And then I look back to Christ. I'm constantly looking to how well I'm doing. That's what we do in our lives. So characteristic. And when that is the case, my friends, that is not Christianity. It's called being a Pharisee. It's moralism. It's self-reliance. It's relying upon something to give you meaning and pleasure and significance, even if it's our morality, and we hold on to it with such a 
tight kung fu grip that to let go of it would be to expose the hardness of our heart. It would be to expose the blindness. It would be to see an area of our life where the light of Jesus Christ has been completely absent. Pharisees are constantly lying to themselves. Because why? We discovered last week that their father is the father of lies. They think that they can see because they've got the externals down pat and yet they are completely blind. Doesn't that sound exactly like what an evil personality who is the father of lies would want to do to you to get you to think that you could see but you're actually still blind? That's what the father of lies is all about. He's trying to make you completely oblivious to God by getting you to rest upon your externals. And that's what the Pharisees do. That's how they're blind to Jesus. And that's how it surfaces in their life. Here's a second way that you can find out if you're blind to Jesus. And we see it in the parents here. The parents of this guy who is blind, this is where we see it. And here's what I see here. That when you can tell when you're, if you are blind to Jesus, if when pressure is applied to your life, life comes pressing down upon you, there's, there's crisis, there's pressure, there's a burden. You can tell you're blind to Jesus Christ if something other than who he is and what he's done for you comes out of your life. If Jesus is nowhere to be found. If the way in which you respond to it shows no evidence whatsoever of Jesus Christ being your rock and your salvation. The, the, blind, the blind man's parents in verse 19 give no evidence that Jesus has given them sight. Because the Pharisees asked them how it is that their son is able to see and they try to be neutral here. They say, just go ask him. We don't know. We don't know. Go ask our son. That's called, let's just try to make everybody happy theology. It's called, don't rock the boat theology. It's called, what can I do to make myself the most comfortable and keep myself out of trouble theology? That, that's what is resonating within the souls of this guy's parents. And so what the, they do is they lie to the Pharisees in verse 21 when they say that they don't know who opened their son's eyes. They know who opened their son's eyes. They were there. The reason why they say that they don't know who opened their son's eyes is because they would have been kicked out of the synagogue if they would have professed that it was Jesus Christ. In this day and age, if you're disciplined by the church and you get excommunicated, you go to the next church down the road. And these days, when you were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were excommunicated from the community. You were ostracized. There was a lot at stake here. But even in the midst of that, they would not stand and profess Christ to their accusers. Look, that is an indication of spiritual blindness. That when the pressure is on in our life, something other than Jesus comes out of us. When the pressure is on in your life, the real you comes out. The real you comes out. What, what's flowing through your veins and, and moving you is, is what comes out of your life. And so when that happens, who's coming out of your life? Is it Jesus Christ or is it all those other idolatrous things that you've built your life upon? That's the question that we're forced to reckon with here. They're trying to make people happy and they're pursuing their own comfort. And, and when they're 
comfort becomes the source of their happiness, that, that's where they're planting their flag. And they're no longer resting in Christ and his word and his promises and in the things that make him look glorious. It seems so harmless to live a life just to try to make people happy, to make yourself comfortable. That, that, that's just, it seems like just what you do. It's, it's a harmless thing to do. But my friends, what, what we're seeing in this passage that it is a fruit of the father of lies. It's one of the fruits of the father of lies because the father of lies tells you never to rock the boat, to stay neutral, to, to just try to make everybody happy. And sometimes the decision that is most going to honor Christ and most like him, make him look radiant is the decision that is going to make you look like a blasted fool. And you may have to suffer for it. You may have to suffer for it in the most unlikely and unexpected of places. See, when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, you have to remember that following Jesus might make some people upset. It, it might cost you something. It cost Jesus his own life to pursue the glory of his Father. And if it cost him his own life to pursue the glory of his Father, then we shouldn't be surprised if in taking up our cross daily, we suffer something that a little bit resembles that. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. Here's the last thing I want you to see. In, in verse 39, this is what Jesus says. He says, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. There's such a major shift in this story. The story starts off with people thinking that they can see, but they're actually being confirmed in their blindness. And it also starts off with a person who is always blind, being able to see. That's the counterintuitive nature of what Christ does. It's what he's always doing. And what he's saying is that those who actually know their spiritual blindness, how that blindness has made their hearts callous and hard to God and how it's manifested itself in rebellion towards him and indifference towards him, and being neither here nor there about him. They, they come to be able to see when Jesus removes the scales from their eyes and enables them to see those things and to see the grace available to them in the gospel. That Jesus has come to cast off their sins as far as the east is from the west. He's come to reconcile them to God and adopt them as sons and daughters and make them his. When they see that, they're able to see they stand gloriously complete in who Jesus is and they're delighted in him. He becomes the source of their joy. Do you know what it means to see Jesus? I have to tell you, I, I mentioned Jonathan Edwards, this book that we're going to read in the men's group on Saturday mornings starting in August. I have a total man crush on Jonathan Edwards. Everything that he writes, I think, is just gold. He was, of course, the American Puritan president of Princeton University back in the 18th century. And, and this is what he, how he describes being able to see Jesus. Listen to it. He says that true Christians center their attention on Christ 
and His beauty transcends all others. His delight is the source of all other delight. He in Himself is the best among 10,000 and altogether lovely. These saints delight in the way of salvation through Christ because it demonstrates God's perfection and wonder. They enjoy holiness, wholeness, and they take no pleasure in sin. God's love is a sweet taste in their mouths, regardless of whether or not their own interests are met. They rejoice over all that Christ has done for them, but that is not the deepest root of their joy. No, they delight merely because God is God. And only then does their delight spill over into all of God's works, including their own salvation. That's a mouthful. And when I first read that, I thought, that's not me. He's talking about somebody else. He's not talking about me. But I I just want to ask you, is there a measure of that in your life? Do you see any evidence in your life of growing maturity in those things? And you have to be honest with yourself. That's why you have to live in relationship with one another in the church, with people who are going to be honest with you and tell you and share with you the areas of of darkness in your life, the areas where Jesus' light has yet to really shine in your life. Is there any evidence of that in your life? Do you see a maturity happening? Listen, any meaningful relationship that you have with any other person, that relationship is going to change you. You're going to be changed by it. You're going to love that person. You're going to begin to love what that person loves and hate what that person hates. And and their interests are going to become your interests. And so your need and my need to be right all the time and our greed and our lust for things to to just get whatever it is that we want. Those things, yes, they'll still be present in your life to some extent because we're not home yet, but is there any evidence that you're pursuing through those things, that they don't own you like they once used to own you? Are you becoming increasingly repulsed by them and fighting to put those things to death, not by just trying to work harder, but by gazing upon Jesus Christ and entrusting yourself to His grace. Folks, you serve people who have sacrificed themselves for you, who you know has your back 100% of the time. That's who Jesus is. That's who He is for you. That's how He views you. And when you know that, you, you move beyond just having some kind of intellectual assent and knowledge to who Jesus is and he, and he comes in and starts to root out this garbage in your life so that you would entrust yourself and enjoy him. You know what starts happening also? You start to really love God's people. I mean, you start to really love the family of God. That's one of the metaphors that he uses for the church, the the family of God, the household of God. And guess what? We're a family, First Pres Biloxi. And sometimes people in your family tick you off. Sometimes they just flat out annoy you to tears. Sometimes they're wildly immature. Sometimes they bring you great joy. Some members of your family are old as dust and some 
are young. But we're a family. We're, we're family with all Christians everywhere, but we're a particular family embodied in this particular place at this particular time. And when Christ saves us, Matthew Henry says this great thing, when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. That's an evidence of the blinders coming off of your life so you can see that you begin to love him and you begin to love his people. Many of us have imbibed the mentality that the normal Christian life is praying before meals, coming to church a couple times out of the month, and obeying the rules. And if that's the normal Christian life to you, it's no wonder why you are bored to tears with it. Jesus is showing us something different because Christianity is about knowing a person. It's about enjoying that person. It's about remembering what that person has done for you. Where he came to you when you were blind as a bat and he removed those scales from your eyes so that you could see him and build your life upon him and have the hope of all of the things that he gives you when he adopts you as his son or his daughter and the hope of glory. Do you believe that? If you don't, make today the day where you cross that line from blindness into sight. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember this great hymn that we're about to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Written by a man who was able to see his whole life, but blind to you until you came and brought him grace and forgave his sins and reconciled him to you. Written by a man who was blind at the end of his life, but who could see you perfectly. Make us a people who can see you in that way and entrust ourselves to you and delight ourselves in you for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.